But I, I count it a huge honor um, to get to come and to share with all of you today. And I was invited to, to speak on the subject of faith and doubt. A couple years ago, I wrote a book on this topic called When Faith Fails. And so they invited me to come out, hey, let's talk about faith and doubt. What do we do about this moment that we're in right now where people are deconstructing their faith and leaving their faith? And how do we as followers of Jesus respond to that? Or if you're in that space, what's a healthy way of viewing that season that you're in? So We're going to unpack that today. We're going to start with a really short verse in the book of Jude. So if you have a Bible nearby, you can grab it. Uh, It's Jude verse 22. There's only one chapter in the book of Jude. And uh, verse 22 is short, but it is so powerful. Jude 22. It says, Be merciful. Be merciful. To those who doubt. You know, one of the interesting things about that word mercy is that in the original language, it's this word elios, which means to repair a broken bone. It was used in the ancient world to describe someone who was severely injured. And a physician would come alongside of them and show them compassion and love and mercy and tenderness. And here in scripture, we see that God's heart, God's posture, towards those who are wrestling with their faith or struggling with their faith is that we are to be those who show mercy to them, compassion, grace. You know, years ago, my family and I, we lived on Maui, Hawaii. I was a pastor of a church. Not a bad place to pastor a church, by the way. Suffering for Jesus on Maui. It was interesting pastoring there, though, because like every Sunday, it was like 50% tourists. And then the people who were there, who lived there, on average, lived about a year. And then they'd move on. Because people go there, they think it's paradise or they're escaping something. <laughs> Usually it's the latter. And uh, then after a year or so, they're like, I miss family, I miss friends, and it's too expensive. And so they'd leave. And so like every Sunday, it was like having a different congregation. One good thing about that is you could tell the same stories, and no one would ever know. Um, but when we lived there, uh, we had this old church, Calvary Chapel, South Maui. And my daughter at the time was three years old. You guys remember Thomas the Tank Engine? Is that a thing now still? Um, so my daughter was just like all about Thomas the Tank Engine. And we're playing downstairs. We set up all her train tracks. And we're playing together. And suddenly there's like some drama between my daughter Amelia and Thomas. And next thing I know, Thomas is flying across the room. And he hit the wall. I'm like, what is going on here? And she was really upset about something. And so I'm like, honey, you, you can't respond that way. That's not the way, you know, to, to respond when you're frustrated. And so I said, sweetie, I'm going to need to give you a timeout. Now, my daughter uh, to this day is a raging extrovert. And so a timeout for her is like her version of purgatory. But I pick her up. I'm like, we're going up the stairs. Like, sweetie, you're going to have a timeout for a little bit. And true story, she grabbed me by my face as we're walking up the stairs, and she put her eyes really close to mine, and she said, with this like passionate voice, she said, but daddy, what about grace? What about grace? She's three years old. She knew how to work the system. She knew I was a pastor, right? And I just stopped in my tracks. I'm like, I, I started laughing, and there goes the timeout. You know? And to this day, she's 16 now. She'll remind me, what about grace? What about grace? I think if there's to be one response that we have to people who are struggling with their faith, and I'm not going to take show of hands or anything, but 
I know probably every single one of us in this room know people in our life who are wrestling with their faith or should be at church, but they're not, who maybe over the last couple of years have walked away from church or God or Christianity, who are in a place of, of deconstruction. And our posture towards them, our way of loving them, is as the Lord tells us here in Jude 22, be merciful to those who doubt. Now, I get it. Like, you mentioned the word doubt, and there are some people who have a really, really hard time relating to it. And we all know people in this camp, too, who you ask them, how long have you been a Christian? They kind of look at you. It's like they've always believed. They were singing Hillsong in their mother's womb. It's like they just came into the world speaking in tongues, haven't looked back since. And so you do a talk on doubt, or you have a conversation about this, and they're like, I don't get it. I've always believed. I've always had strong faith. And I kind of envy those who are in that place. But I think for most of us, doubt is just part of the complicated, enigmatic mess of what it means to be human. Uh, The philosopher Michael Novak, he said, doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge, which runs through every soul. I think doubt is part of the process, in many ways, of growing in faith. In fact, you could actually argue that those with the greatest faith often struggle with the greatest doubt. John Wesley, he said, the higher the hill, the stronger the wind. The higher the life, so much stronger is the attack of the enemy. And I think there are seasons in our life where if you truly believe, like we just sang, that last song was so affirming, like, Yeah, I believe you're a God of miracles. I believe that you're here. I believe that you're going to work. I believe you're going to bring revival. And that's amazing. And if we really believe those things, then when we see the world's brokenness and pain and heartache, that's going to trouble us. Oftentimes, doubt is not so much a sign of weakness as it is a sign of a soul that's screaming out for substance and truth. And this is one of the things we need to know with those people in our life, your kids or your roommate or a close friend who used to walk with the Lord but no longer are. In many cases, the doubt that they've expressed, the struggles that they've expressed is their soul is crying out for something of substance. They're wanting to grow. Or maybe your kids are wanting a faith that is their own, not just an inherited faith, but a faith that they've acquired because they've wrestled with God through the dark nights of the soul. You know, we live in a moment where there is a profound movement away from Christianity And we're seeing more and more people increasingly deconstruct, it's kind of the latest word over the last couple years, or lose their faith. In fact, recent studies have shown two-thirds of American Christians say they struggle with doubt on a regular basis. Two-thirds. Barna Group, they put on a study just recently and they said that only 36% on average of Christians are now coming back to church after the pandemic. So things shut down, people get used to not going to church, they're kind of discipled into not going to church, and now that most churches are reopened, people aren't coming back. What's going on? You go on TikTok, you go on Instagram, you look at the hashtag deconstruction. 
And it's inundated right now. And I've seen a like, massive spike in this the last six months. It's inundated with story after story of people getting online, making a video, saying, here's why I left the church. Here's why I don't believe. Here's why I no longer identify as a Christian. And we're seeing this tsunami of doubt that's sweeping across our nation right now. Now, many would look at that and say, oh, that's so terrible. In many ways, yeah, it is. We're so post-Christian or we're so secular. Yeah, that, that, that's true. But there's also a hopeful way of looking at it because I think post-Christian can also mean pre-revival. And I think God is wanting to work in our age. I think God is shaking the church across America. I, I think we are seeing some people walk away and leave the faith. But in some ways, that can be really good because it means that those who remain are white hot. It's like coals, man. We're burned bright. And it's in those spaces, not necessarily in the big numbers, but it's with hearts that are aflame, with a passion for God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where revival comes. And I think God is going to do something in our generation, in our time. But also part of this, we need to know how to respond to this moment that we're in. We need to know how to have conversation with people who are leaving the faith or deconstructing their faith or doubting their faith. Because typically, when someone doubts, they're given two options. And neither option is very good. Option number one is to idolize your doubt. And this is what we're seeing happening now at a cultural level. It's kind of the trendy thing to do, to post your video online and say, I'm no longer a Christian. And culturally, we have all these pressures that are swirling around us that are trying to get us not to believe. And so many people who used to go to church are now realizing actually going to church or identifying as a Christian comes with a cost. And there are a lot of people who don't want to pay that cost. And so sometimes in the name of deconstruction, what you see is a false faith or a faith that wasn't necessarily their own, and it's just being exposed for what it is. In some cases, deconstruction, if it's leading back to truth, if it's an honest engagement to know Jesus and pursue Jesus and to understand more of his heart, in that case, it can be good. But what I'm seeing right now happening is many, many people are idolizing their doubt. They think because they have a question or an uncertainty or an experience in life or church or whatever, they assume that that doubt has merit. And rather than taking time to engage it or fully explore it, or many times they don't have the community or support system to help them through it, and so they just toss it all out. But one of the dangers of that is that when you deconstruct, well, you can only deconstruct for so long, right? We could deconstruct this building. We could take off the roof and the walls, and pretty soon there's there's nothing left. But everyone needs a house to live in. Everyone needs a worldview. And, And so I'm also seeing that those who are going down the deconstruct path, after a year or two, they feel lost. Like, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? Well, I don't believe anything. Well, you gotta believe something to... Make it through the heartache and the difficulty of life. Idolizing your doubt isn't enough. But there's another option, and this one's pretty unhealthy too. The other option isn't so much to idolize doubt as it is to demonize doubt. And and I see this happen in, in some church settings that tend to be more legalistic. And essentially the ethos is, hey, if you're going to come to church, you better put on the happy face, fake it, Sings the songs loudly, 
act like everything's okay. I call it the Lego gospel. Everything is awesome, right? You just got to come and act like it's all cool. But inside, your soul is like, no, I'm, I'm struggling. You lose someone. A lot of people have lost people over the last couple years. I just flew in from Portland a couple days ago, and a good friend of mine passed away from cancer, and I did the memorial service there. And you go through stuff like that, and it just breaks your heart. And like, God, I don't understand this. It raises questions in your heart. Or, or you read parts of the Bible that maybe seem kind of ubiquitous or weird. <laughs> Our church in Oregon, when I was a pastor there, um, we would go through the Bible in a year. You know those Bible in a year programs, and you start in January in Genesis, and I see the same thing happen year after year after year, where January is like super strong. Everyone's really on point. Reading through Genesis, it's fast-moving. There's lots of stories. And then you get to the book of Exodus, and if you miss a chapter, you can always watch the movie. And then you get to Leviticus, And how many read-through-the-Bible programs have died the death of Leviticus? You you come to these verses, you're like, this is violent or bloody or weird or I don't know what to do with it. Thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, dang it. You take the goat out of the pot and you put him outside, right? Sometimes reading through the Bible, I mean, let's be honest, there are times studying Scripture, picking up the Bible... And you come across these passages and that can cause your faith to be shaken or at the very least it can raise questions. And I'm seeing an emerging generation right now that wants to engage with these difficult questions. I'm seeing an emerging generation that values authenticity, not Lego gospel. (laughs) I'm seeing an emerging generation that's saying, yeah, I have these doubts and questions and if it's just going to be fake and happy clappy and everything is awesome, well, I don't necessarily want a part of that because life is hard and challenging and we're walking through stuff right now globally over the last couple years. And so demonizing doubt really only perpetuates a toxic cycle because doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. It's not until we drag it into the light that it can become redemptive and healing. And I believe this is part of the process of showing mercy to those who doubt, showing mercy to yourself even, if you're in that place of doubt. Because God wants to draw those questions and the heartache and the pain and the uncertainty and the why, Lord. He wants to draw that out of you so that we can wrestle with God. And in the process... That is how our faith grows. And one of the mind-blowing things to me as as I look at Scripture is I see this is the model of how God has given us and encouraged us to wrestle with our doubts. In fact, the Bible in many ways gives voice to our doubts. Read the book of Psalms. That's not Lego gospel. The book of Psalms is full of gritty, raw, unfiltered, difficult, thorny, challenging questions. How long, O Lord? Why do the nations rage? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we find in Scripture is that God gives space to his people to ask the difficult questions because it's in the asking of the questions that our faith becomes alive, it grows It's hard at times, but it becomes more real and more genuine. And this is an important thing to understand about doubt, is that for for many Christians, when they hear that word, they're immediately turned off because they assume that doubt 
is the same as unbelief. But what you see in the New Testament is that doubt and unbelief are actually two separate words. So let me geek out on you for just a minute here. But I think this is important. The word doubt in the New Testament, it's this word diacrino. And it means to separate or to be torn. In Latin, it's the word dubitare, which comes from a word meaning two. So when you see the word doubt in the Bible, just think of a person whose heart is being ripped apart. Someone who's in two separate spaces at the same time. What do I mean by that? Doubt is when you have your beliefs, your understanding of God, what you've read in the word, what you've gleaned from scripture, what you've inherited from your family, and yet you go through something, you experience something, tragedy, pain, loss, cancer, and you walk through that season and it causes this tearing in your heart where you're like, I believe, but... Help my unbelief. Lord, I know who you are and I trust who you are. Just like we sang earlier. How could I not believe? But I'm also encountering this pain. I'm also struggling with this passage. I also just witnessed this event happen in a church and that's shaking my faith. Whatever the case may be. So in the New Testament, the word doubt just means to be torn in two. That's a whole lot different than the word unbelief. Because unbelief, well, it's a separate Greek word. It's the word apostia. And apostia is an unwillingness to believe. You see the difference? So doubt says, I'm struggling. Help. I'm torn in two. Unbelief says, ah, I've made up my mind. It's why in Mark chapter 5, by the way, it says that Jesus left the village because of their apostia, because of their unbelief. They, they had no interest. And there are some people who actually have no genuine interest in trying to seek the answer or to pursue God. They're disinterested in him. Uh, for a couple of years, my family and I, we lived in Oxford, England, which to this day is kind of known for a couple things. One is for being an epicenter of what's called the new atheism. But there's also this vibrant, passionate Jesus community there. And when we lived there, we kind of experienced both. In fact, uh, Richard Dawkins, you may recognize his name, world's leading atheist right now. He wrote this book called The God Delusion. And while we lived there, um, one of Richard Dawkins' friends, he wrote an article uh, for the Guardian newspaper, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, by the way, passed away a few years ago. But Stephen Hawking, the great physicist, wrote this article for The Guardian in which he's just ripping apart Christianity. And at one point in the article, he said, quote, religion is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. They then went to John Lennox, who at that time was a professor of mine, passionate Jesus follower, brilliant thinker. And John Lennox... <laughs> He was asked, look, your colleague, Stephen Hawking, just said that Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. What do you have to say about that? And without blinking an eye, he said, no, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. Brilliant response. But he's putting his finger on something, and that is there are some who would say, like Hawking, although he's passed away, so I think his views on God have probably changed now. Um, but there, there are some who are like, no, I've made up my mind. This is what I believe. I'm an atheist or anti-theist, whatever the case may be. That's unbelief. And unbelief in Scripture is a sin. But what you see as well is this word doubt, where it's kind of this neutral middle ground. It's like a spiritual Switzerland. And it can lead you, depending on what you do with it. 
Those doubts and questions can lead you towards unbelief or it can lead you towards greater faith. It all has to do with what you do with the doubts that you have. And what we find in scripture is a litany of women and men who were in that space who went through difficult, challenging seasons, who came face to face with some of the hardest questions in life, and as they wrestled with God through it, God met them. In fact, one of the best examples has to be Jacob. Remember his story in the book of Genesis? He literally wrestled with God. Or if you're a fan of that movie, Nacho Libre, he was the world's first luchador, right? He wrestled with God. And in the process, he was changed. In fact, at one point, God touched his hip and it popped out a socket. He walked away with a limp. At another point, God asked him, he said, what is your name? Not because God didn't know, but because he wanted Jacob to own his story. I'm Jacob, which in Hebrew means basically dirty, sneaky thief. This is who I am. I've got issues. I've got struggles. And God says, I'm going to change your name from Jacob to Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. And he became the founder, in a sense, of the nation of Israel, a group of people that when you read their story in the Old Testament, they wrestled with God big time. They weren't afraid to pray gritty, raw prayers. They weren't afraid to go to the mat with God. In fact, God encouraged it. In the book of Deuteronomy, God said, I want your kids to ask you questions. And this is how you're to respond to them. You see, the children of Israel understood what it meant to be those who wrestle with God because it's in the act of wrestling that our name is changed as well. Maybe that's what faith is about. Maybe faith isn't, I'll just memorize this list of apologetic answers. Well, that can help for sure. But maybe faith is deeper than that. Maybe it's learning the fragile beauty of trust in the midst of unanswered questions. And what you find in Scripture, story after story after story, Sarah, who had questions about her life, and it drove her to deeper prayer. Moses, who didn't understand an aspect of God's character, but it drove him up the mountain where he saw God's glory. The book of Psalms again. In fact, Psalm 73, great example. Psalm 73 verse 1 says, truly God is good. We love that. We sing it. In fact, we just sang it. God is good. It's the foundation of our theology. But the part we often miss is verse 2. Because in verse 2, right after saying God is good, the author, who's Asaph, he said, as for me, my feet almost slipped. If you've ever gone rock climbing, I've tried it once, it was horrible. Um, And there was a moment, rock climbing, where one of my feet slipped out. And you're just like, whoa, and just that feeling of disorientation. If you've ever done that, you, you know what I'm talking about. As for me, my feet almost slipped. Why? Because you read the rest of Psalm 73. He had all these struggles. He had all these questions. And he brings them honestly before the Lord in prayer. And God met him. God is good. As for me, my feet almost slipped. Remember, it's this word, to. That's the word doubt. On one hand, yeah, Lord, I, I believe this about you. Just like we sang, we've seen miracles. We, we believe in you. But on the other hand, I just went through this. 
I just encountered that. I'm struggling here. I'm wrestling with anxiety. You're struggling with a relationship at work. You're, you're, you don't understand certain parts of the Bible. We, we all know what it's like to experience that sense of disorientation. But in the disorientation, God doesn't judge you or condemn you or shame you or say, just sing louder. He meets you in that space and says, I want to deepen your faith in the process of the pain. I want to deepen your faith as you wrestle with me. Deep faith calls out to us on the other side of our doubts. And if we don't idolize them or demonize them, but instead bring them to the Lord, what we find is a God of unending, limitless compassion and grace because no one showed more mercy to the doubter than Jesus, right? Remember uh, the Great Commission, Jesus was resurrected. He sent out his disciples. You know what it says there? Some worshiped and some doubted. If I were Jesus, I would separate the worshipers from the doubters. Be like, worshipers, you're on the team. Go, go plant churches. Doubters, go home or take this seminary class or whatever, right? He doesn't do that. He sends them all out. Or doubting Thomas, infamously named, touch my wounds. Or John the Baptist, who probably looks something like our worship leader, which was amazing worship, by the way. I just imagine John the Baptist, right? Long hair and a long beard and eating locusts and wild honey and drinking kombucha in the middle of the desert. And he experienced the presence of God. Jesus met him. He baptized him. I mean, talk about a faith-affirming building moment. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And yet, John the Baptist, shortly after that, he had doubts. Remember, he's languishing in some prison cell, and he sends a message to Jesus. He's like, hey, are you the one? Or should we look for another? What? You just baptized him. When Jesus heard John the Baptist's doubt, he didn't shame him, condemn him, vote him off the team. He said to his disciples, there's no greater prophet than that man. No one showed more mercy to the doubter. Because when we go through seasons like that, God uses the questions, God uses the heartache, God uses the pain to deepen us and to draw us closer to him if we let him. One of the worst things we can do with our doubt is say, I have these questions, I'm out of here. I think that moment, and we'll all walk through it if you haven't been there already, That moment is where God wants to take us to the mat, and there he wants to change our name. Uh, How many of you have read uh, A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis? Okay, a few of you have. When you mention C.S. Lewis, most people think Narnia or they think mere Christianity, but he wrote a ton of other books, and A Grief Observed is super dark. Like, (laughs) it's kind of depressing, just to warn you, if you want to go pick it up, like Eeyore vibes, seriously. But you walk through it. And the reason it's dark, by the way, the backstory, they made a movie about it not too long ago. The backstory, his wife, Joy, died. So they'd been married for just a a few short years. He describes them as the happiest years of his life. When she died, it was the most brutal, devastating experience. And as he's walking through this grief, he writes this book, A Grief Observed. And initially, he wrote it under a pseudonym. He didn't want people to know it was actually him because it's so gritty. It's so painful. He's so 
honest with the doubts and questions that he had. Now, a friend of his who was a poet recognized his writing, got a hold of C.S. Lewis and said, did you write this? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, you should probably put your name on it because I think most people are figuring it out now. But in that book, he's pouring out his grief in real time. And that's why it's kind of hard to read. You're like, whoa, I thought this was the mere Christianity guy. I thought this was the answers guy. But instead, there's just all these questions. God, he said, I came to the door in prayer expecting you to open it, but I just got a slam door in my face. At one point, he calls God the great iconoclast. He says, my view of you has been shattered. It's been disrupted. You, you, you can just envision his, his faith being fragmented, failing in a sense in this moment. But what you see with C.S. Lewis is as he walk through this season of grief and doubt and heartache and pain, rather than using those as a catalyst to drive him from God, he went to the mat with God and God began to heal his faith and restore his faith and put his faith back together. His faith looks slightly different on the other side. Less of an emphasis on bullet point certainty, memorize all these points, here's all the answers, more of an emphasis on trust and relationship and walking with God through the heartache. In fact, another one of his books called Till We Have Faces, there's this haunting line. It's my favorite line of C.S. Lewis. He said, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. What other answer would suffice? He had come to a point in his faith journey where he realized what his soul was longing for was not another list of simple answers. What his soul was longing for was to know God, experience God, and trust God in the midst of unanswered questions. What if faith is something like that? And what if in those seasons of life, and chances are there's a handful in this room or more that you're really wrestling with your faith or maybe even feel that your faith is failing, but what if in this moment Jesus wants to meet you and walk with you and heal you and take you places in your journey with him that you've never been before? You see, I think just like any relationship, sometimes it's the tension Sometimes it's the pain. Sometimes it's the argument. Sometimes it's the disagreement that actually causes the relationship to grow, right? Remember talking to a guy a few years back and he was almost 30 and really desperate to get married. He dated a bunch of girls and finally he shows up at church. He's like, I've been dating this girl now for six months. It's amazing. I'm like, that's awesome. Where is she? And he's like, well, she's, she's not here because she's not a Christian. I'm like, Oh, so you're missionary dating. Okay, so let's talk about that. And we began to have this conversation. And at one point, I asked him, like, why are you having this relationship if, you know, you're not on the same page? And I thought, you know, faith was really important to you. And he, he, he was honest. He's like, well, you're a pastor. I don't want to lie to you. He said, to be honest, I'm dating her because she's hot. That's what he said. And I said, so is hell. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about this. And so anyway, this led to a whole other conversation and then he said something really interesting. Uh, he, said, he said, we've been dating six months. And he said, I know it must be of God because we haven't had a single argument. And he said, isn't that awesome? I'm like, really? I, 
I don't know if that's a good sign. He said, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if you're really getting to know someone, if she's getting to know you or you're getting to know her, there's going to be tension, right? There, there are going to be moments of conflict. There's going to be moments of disagreement because it's just surface level. Sure, yeah, everything's good. But you go deeper and it begins to draw stuff out and it's in that process that there's depth and maturity and the relationship actually begins to become more authentic, you know, there's a lot I know about my wife. We've been married 20 years now. Amazing, amazing woman. She's a morning person. She loves to cook. She loves to paint. Uh, she used to be a cat person. Then we got a golden doodle, and she turned from the dark side. I mean, there's a lot I know about her. But there are times, and those of you married, you know this, especially if you've been married a while, there are still times where your spouse surprises you, right? You'll hear a story from their past, like, whoa, or you see them respond in a situation that you weren't expecting, and that can be a surprise too. Earlier this year, my wife uh, had a medical emergency. One of her lungs collapsed, and she was in the hospital for two weeks. It was super scary. But the way I saw her respond to that with dignity and strength and courage was like, wow. Seeing aspects to her personality come out you see, I think a sign that a relationship is growing and maturing is sometimes it's the questions, right? Mystery is the lifeblood of authenticity. It's the pursuit of love that leads to the discovery of love. And what if that is what God is after? What if there are questions? What if we live in a world where there are mysteries? What if there are times where we don't know how to respond to certain situations or the pat Christianese cat poster answers don't work quite as well. What if it's in those moments that God is teaching us the fragile beauty of trust and relationship? What if in those moments he's wanting us to go further and farther than we've ever gone before? Years ago, I was a missionary in a country called Vanuatu. Has any of you heard of Vanuatu? Okay, a handful of you have. Um, most people haven't because it's in the middle of nowhere. It's this tiny island nation, um, and it's considered the most primitive country on earth. So I lived there for three years, lived in the jungle, middle of the jungle. <laughs> There's no electricity, no internet, no running water, as primitive and simple as you can get. And they had these college students who came from different tribes to the school and we would teach through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And they would then go back into their tribes and start churches. It was really awesome what God did. But for me, moving there in my early 20s, it was a massive learning curve because not only the culture and trying to understand just their traditions and customs, but also their language. Um, they spoke a language called Bislama, which is like a, a combination of what they speak in their tribes, a little bit of English. Uh, even a little bit of French, and it's kind of all blended together. Um, for example, uh, the word slingshot, which they use to get their food. There's no Walmart there, no Whole Foods. So everyone needs a slingshot to go get their food. The word slingshot in Bislama is elastic, blong, shootem pigeon. <laughs> That's the word slingshot. Um, my favorite word by far is the word piano. In Bislama, you wouldn't say piano, you would say... <laughs> Give me one big fella box where he got white teeth blong him. Mo, he got black teeth blong him. Mo, suppose you kill him teeth blong him. Him, he sing out long you. That's the word piano. So you can imagine I'm teaching the Bible and I come across the word propitiation. I'm like, oh my gosh, 
This is going to take a long time. So huge learning curve, but amazing, amazing people, amazing culture too, because one of the things, again, keep in mind, there's literally nothing to do, especially at night. Um, and so we would just sit around a fire. They did this every night, and I thought it was so awesome. They called it Talk Story. They'd make a fire. We'd all sit around it. And every night, it was a different person who would share a different story. Nowadays, stories is what you do on Instagram, but there it's like actual people. Pretty cool. And you'd hear these stories of their life or what they went through or challenges they faced. And so I'd hear this night after night after night. And after I'd been there several months, they turned to me one night. They said, okay, Dominic, it's your turn. We want you to tell us a story. They said, what is your favorite place in America? And without thinking about it, I just blurted out. I said, Disneyland. And they said, what's Disneyland? Now, how... How do you begin to describe Disneyland in that culture where <laughs> they'd never seen anything like that? There's no like framework, even in their language, to describe it. What's Disneyland? And so I tried to, in Bislama, tell them about it. I said, well, <laughs> there's a place in California, and uh, the first thing you see, there's a castle there. But the problem was, in Bislama, there's no word for, there's no castle word. So the closest they had was Big fella hut. So there's a big fella hut in California. They said, how big? I said, I don't know. It's like 100 feet tall. I'm already like, wow, that's a huge hut. Who lives in the hut? I said, well, um, there's a mouse. And, and his name is Mickey. But there's no word for mouse in their language. The closest they have for mouse is big fella rat which was their worst nightmare because rats were a huge problem in Vanuatu. So <laughs> they're like, okay, there's a big fella hut and there's a big fella rat that li- lives inside of this hut. How big is the rat? I'm like, he's like 10 feet tall. And their eyes are just like, what? I'm like, no, no, no. It, 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 it's not like a real rat. There's someone inside the rat. So he, he eats people? I'm like, no, no, he doesn't eat people. It's like a person inside the skin of the rat. And he like talks through the rat, demon possession. And like, <laughs> they were so, so confused. And finally, they start talking to each other. And <laughs> one of the guys, he said, I'll never forget this as long as I live. One of the guys, he said, Dominic, you must never go to Disneyland it is an evil place. And Mickey the rat, he said, is a witch doctor. So in my mind, I'm the happiest place on earth. In their mind, it's like this evil cult empire run by a mastermind slash witch doctor named Mickey. And so we go back and forth. I'm trying to describe it. And it was not working. I get to the teacups. I'm like big fella cups. And at this point, it was <laughs> none of it worked. And Finally, came to the point in the conversation, and it dawned on me. I'm like, what's the only way that all their questions could be resolved? The only way is if they went, right? I made 100 bucks as a teacher per month in Vanuatu. So I said, look, guys, I have no money. If I had enough money, I'd buy y'all tickets. We'd fly to California, and you could see it for yourself. You could see the big fella hut. You, you could take a selfie with Mickey, hashtag witch doctor vibes. Like you could, once you experience and see it, it's then 
it's then that some of those questions could be resolved. And I, th- I think we're, we're living in this moment, kind of sitting around a fire, the dumpster fire of 2020 and 2021. Like, we're in this interesting time, culturally, spiritually, in the church. And a lot of people have a lot of questions. Big fella hut, big fella rat. And what do we do with that? Be merciful to those who doubt. Because sometimes the questions and the heartache and the pain and the deconstruction even, sometimes those things in life are actually an invitation by God to say, get on the plane, let's go. There are places I want you to see. There's things I want you to do. There's aspects to my character I want you to explore. Like C.S. Lewis said, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. It's not just getting another list of answers. It's discovering and encountering God. And he meets us in those hard places because, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because you are with me. He's our shepherd, and he's going to lead us through this season and the people in your life that are giving up on their faith or walking away from their faith, don't give up on them because God sure hasn't. The story is not yet over, and I really believe revival will come. I really do in this generation in which we find ourselves in. Amen? Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for the legacy, the history of this community, the way you've used this church, God, to reach the nation, so many people coming through this place. And I pray continue to pour out your favor and blessing on it. Thank you for the leaders, the pastors. Thank you, God, for the heart that they have for you. And I pray especially, Lord, for any in this room, first of all, for those who may be struggling with doubt, For those who are wrestling with unanswered questions, I pray, God, that they would just sense your mercy and compassion and grace right now. That they would just know how much you love them and that you are walking with them through this journey. And Lord, we all can think of people that we know who probably should be here but aren't. People who once walked with you but no longer are. Lord, we pray that you would bring the prodigal sons and daughters back home. And we pray you would use us in their life to love them, to walk with them, to show mercy to them. And Lord, we long for the day when we just see a new move of your spirit. We believe you're already at work, but we pray for more. We pray you bring revival in this day, Lord. We love you. We thank you for what you're going to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you guys so much. So good to be here.